You're listening to The Social Workers on WCDB Albany. Welcome to The Social Workers Radio Talk Show. I'm your co-host, Alyssa Lotmore. And with us today, we have Greg Olson. Greg is the acting director of the New York State Office for the Aging, where he oversees the agency's day-to-day operations and the administration of federal and state-funded programs designed to assist more than 3.7 million older adult residents in the state, as well as programs that assist family members and others involved with helping older adults needing greater levels of assistance. The New York State Office for the Aging assists older New Yorkers to be as independent as possible for as long as possible through advocacy and the development and delivery of programs and services that support and empower older New Yorkers and their families in partnership with the network of public and private organizations that serve them. Greg has served in a variety of executive management positions within the agency. So welcome, Greg. Thank you for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting us. Now, as your bio mentioned, you're with the New York State Office for the Aging. So can we start off by just get you giving us a little overview of your work and how things have shifted for you and the agency during this pandemic? Sure, absolutely. So the New York State Office for the Aging administers federal, state, and local dollars that go to uh, every county office for the aging in the state. There are 59 of them. So regardless of where you live, there's a county office for the aging uh, within your community. And, you know, our mission is pretty simple, uh, not always easy to implement, but a simple one. And that's to help older adults stay as independent as possible for as long as possible in their homes and communities. And we do that through a variety of uh, services and supports, not only for the older adult themselves, but for their spouses or caregivers. And those would be things like home delivered meals, um, programming in uh, the community, like at senior centers, uh, nutrition, counseling, and education, uh, legal services, health promotion, benefits and application assistance, and then assistance with uh, daily tasks if somebody needs it. So the question of how we have uh, shifted, I think everybody has have, had to shift uh, from a bricks and mortar model to an in-home model because the governor under his leadership you know, has been very aggressive in making sure that we abide by stay-at-home orders and social distancing. And for the population that we oversee, there's actually 4.6 million people over the age of 60 in New York State now. Um, they're really the targets of the, the Matilda's Law named after the governor's mother, which is really designed to um, encourage strongly older New Yorkers to stay at home and take all the precautions that we know because they are in the target uh, risk for having really uh, difficult outcomes because of this virus. So... With social distancing required and vulnerable populations, you know, must be kept safe. And you just mentioned the statistics for the number of older adults in New York State. It makes us wonder how we can best care for our elderly loved ones. You know, some of us wonder if our parents and grandparents should move in, if they should be physically isolated alone. And I assume a lot of that depends on individual situations. But what advice do you have for many of us who are trying to navigate these unfamiliar waters? Yeah, and I think that that's a great question. And so, you know, I, I don't think that the, the order is designed to isolate people. But uh, I think the governor has been crystal clear, and we have been as well, to our uh, network of providers, which is over 1,200 providers, you know, that the precautions, the social distancing, the wearing of the mask, 
Uh, the washing hands and cleaning protocols are really, really important. So, you know, it's okay that people are, um, you know, living in the same house together, but you still need to practice those protocols um, if that's the case. The, the biggest issue, there's really two of those, two huge issues that have come out of this um, with the stay-at-home order. Number one is social isolation. And so of all the things that we could be doing as a, as a people, and I think we've kind of gotten away from this over the last uh, few decades in terms of, you know, connections with our neighbors and our friends and our community, um, really combating social isolation because of, of the, of, you know, what this pandemic is doing is isolating people is really important. So, you know, if, if you know somebody who's, who's in this age group or who is staying home and who is taking this seriously, as I hope everybody is, you know, uh, phone calls or, or check-ins, uh, Skype, you know, those types of, of things go a long way in helping to uh, reduce isolation. That's really important. The second thing is, is that, you know, if people are staying at home, they're going to need services. And there's five, you know, key services that have really come out of this that our network is providing on a day-to-day basis everywhere in the state. One is home-delivered meals for those individuals who are unable to shop or cook and prepare their own meals. Grocery and supply delivery um, from the grocery store or, or other areas. Uh, medication delivery. Uh, transportation to really important doctor's appointments like dialysis or cancer treatments and then combating social isolation, you know, making sure that we're, we're calling people uh, or receiving calls or able to talk to people or provide them with some of the resources that already exist um, to combat social isolation, like the state's mental health um, uh, 800 number where they have almost uh, 7,500 uh, individuals who have volunteered their time to field questions to try to reduce depression and anxiety and, and those types of outcomes that are coming from this pandemic as well as the National Friendship Line out of California. And at the end, I'd be happy to give those uh, those phone numbers out. Oh, that would be perfect. And, you know, you mentioned the people are going to be having to care for their loved ones, and they might already be doing so, but some rely mm-hmm. on services such as, mm-hmm. uh, you know, home and health community-based services like adult daycare services, respite care, home care, transportation services. But a lot of people are caring for a loved one, be it a spouse, a parent, a grandparent. So what steps should individuals who are primary caregivers be taking to ensure that their own health is okay physically and mentally as maybe a lot of the steps that they were doing before are going to be, they're going to have to be doing a little bit more because those outside service providers can't come in or can't assist. Well, I think that there, there are things that service providers can continue to do. So let's take the example of social adult day that you had just mentioned, right? That's a bricks and mortar. You, you bring your loved one to a structured uh, place for nutrition, supervision, activities, things of that nature. So, you know, what we've had to do is shift that business model from one where you are taking uh, somebody somewhere to where you shift those services into the home. Um, so, you know, if if a caregiver of somebody who is receiving social adult day is, is not able to help with the nutrition component or needs some, some respite or caregiver support, you know, those SADS programs are still operational. They're just not operational in, in the traditional way uh, that we have seen them. So many of the staff have been reprogrammed to um, – you know, to do the social isolation check-in calls, you can still have meals delivered. Um, so people can come and still not have direct contact. I'll give you an example. Um, I still continue to need a home-delivered meal. So, you know, my driver or whomever is delivering that meal can come to my home, knock on the door. I can talk to them through the other side. 
they ask me if I need anything else, let them know who I am, that I'm going to leave the meal um, at the at the door if possible. And, you know, give me a few minutes uh, to walk away before you open the door. So there's still ways to deliver services in that regard. Um, you know, our, our drivers, our, the personal care aides, et cetera, are still supposed to abide by the same precautions that a healthcare worker would. Uh, the, the cleanliness of the hands, the cleaning, constant cleaning, wearing of the mask so that we're not, not only transmitting to our customers, but you don't want the customers transmitting to the staff. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of those services are, are still available and are, and are still being delivered. And in fact, in a, uh, a lot more of them have because, you know, we have the traditional caseload that we had prior to the COVID pandemic. And now with the stay at home order, there's a lot more people, again, taking this very seriously as they should, um, who are requesting services and we're able to provide those. We, we received a tremendous amount of support through two of the stimulus bills that'll bring an additional $73 million or so to New York State to provide these very uh, services. So at this point, we're really not um, having any issue with capacity and I hope that that's true over the next couple of weeks. But if there are folks who are listening to this, um, you call your local office for the aging. It's your first step um, to get any assistance that you may need. Well, I think it's amazing that you guys were able to transition so quickly because this was something, you know, my daughter, I have a seven-year-old and her school had a transition to this, you know, distance learning model. And your office has seemed to be able to coordinate so well with providers to be able to still get these services that people need in a a way that is abiding to that socially distancing and respecting each other base for health um, very quickly. Yeah, you know, and, and we do, you know, unfortunately, this isn't our first uh, emergency. I mean, we've never had anything quite like this, but, you know, the, this network is very resilient. I think why it's so successful is it's a grassroots community network first. It's not a top down, you know, it's not like the state's directing all of these things. The the provider network, the relationship network, et cetera, which has been established over a 50-year period uh, here in New York State, is very, very strong. Um, so, you know, having gone through emergencies and emergency planning, again, having the amazing leadership of uh, the governor of the state, not only through this pandemic, but just in the way that we are required to, you know, plan for these types of contingencies and work together as, as agencies um, to have a coordinated response that makes sense. It, it, it wasn't very hard for us to shift because most of the services that we provide are in the home and community. And so it's just taking, you know, what you were doing potentially in a bricks and mortar setting, like a senior center or a social adult day and providing the services in the home, which is what we do uh, every day anyway. So, yeah, it wasn't a big lift for us. And, um, you know, being two to three steps ahead is something I think that we pride ourselves in. Um, so that we're not, you know, caught flat-footed when there are a problem arises. You have to think through all these different contingencies and, you know, provide the network with the flexibility uh, to really get the job done, depending on what the need is in that particular area. They don't need me telling them what to do. They need me to get out of the way and support them so that they can do what they need to do because they know their customers, they know their community, and they know their resources. Well, it's such important work and it's just, it's amazing how this has transitioned. And like I said, it's, you guys are doing a great job. So for 
switching a little bit from the physical needs to the mental health needs. I have a seven-year-old. I usually bring her to my, her great-grandmother, my grandmother, lives a few blocks away. She's used to seeing her a few days a week. Yesterday was, it was Easter for us and we celebrated it. And my daughter was kind of outside on the front front lawn with a Easter basket hunt outside while my grandmother was inside watching. And we don't know how long this is going to last. And we do FaceTime at night and we're trying to do things to still keep my grandmother connected. But what are some ways for older adults who have to kind of isolate and can't do their normal activities with neighbors and with families to still have that connection piece, to still have those community aspects that bring joy to their lives and that connection? Yeah, and I I think that's a great question. You know, there's a variety of different resources. I think what we're going to learn through this is that the the telephone, um, you know, traditional or cell phone, regardless, is going to become in in season again. It's really important just for people to connect. I mean, we're we're social beings by nature. Uh, We don't do well when we're isolated. We know what the healthcare costs are, the cost of depression, the mortality rates go up. Um, we know all of that. Um, pu- you know, social isolation was a public health problem prior to the pandemic and uh, certainly being exacerbated by it. And I think that where we're going to come out of this, hopefully, is a much stronger um, network that addresses social isolation in general. But this isn't just for older people. The mental health aspect and the social isolation, you know, I have kids as well that are around your age and we went through the same thing yesterday. And so whether you are you know, uh, leading an agency like mine, or you're on the front lines as workers, or you're a volunteer. Um, you know, this is this is impacting everybody, from those who are providing services to those who are receiving services to those who aren't at all. And you know, noted knowing that there are a variety of resources like the mental health line that you can call. Um, the AARP has built an amazing platform um, on their website for individuals to get onto a you know a virtual. Uh, connection uh, website. There is something called, uh, the, as I mentioned, the friendship line. Uh, there is grief.com. There are ways to do virtual library tours and virtual senior centers. And people are changing their business models to offer things, uh, you know, virtually like exercise classes, uh, things of that nature. I like the, some of the things that are cropping up around the state where um, college kids or high school kids are being engaged um, to you know, make phone calls or check in with people. This is a wonderful time for grandparents and grandkids to have a grandparent walk through their life and their story. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we don't often spend uh, time getting to know that level of detail of people. And we have an older generation that's lived through some of the most in- incredible changes that our society has ever seen. And uh, this is really a great opportunity to kind of connect on that level and learn a little bit more about our history through uh, the older folks that um, that are part of our lives. And I think that there's a, those types of things are going to be more and more important uh, the longer that this goes on. And I'm hopeful that, you know, one of the silver linings, if there is one that comes out of something like this, is a much stronger community um, where people know each other and connect a little bit more rather than what we kind of had before, which was a cell phone look down culture where you might not know who your neighbor is. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that'll change through this. Well, that's what I'm hoping too, because there's a connection piece. That's the one thing that I think so many of us have been struggling with a little bit is you see somebody and you can't go up and give them a hug or you're not, you have to sort of not have those normal interactions, the family meals that you might've had with extended family or with neighbors. So being able to come back to that or find a new way to engage more with others after all of this is over. 
So what are some resources? I mean, you've mentioned a few different resources, but what are ways that people can connect? Is it on the Office of the Aging's website or how can we find out more about these? So the, uh, the mental health helpline here in New York State, again, it's staffed by over 7,000 uh, mental health professionals who are volunteering their time to field calls, um, is 1-844-863-9314. There is uh, a national uh, friendship line uh, that deals just with the social isolation component. That is 1-800-971-0016. Um, I had mentioned grief.com where people can go online and get into chat rooms because I think what, what, what we're talking about with the sadness and the loneliness of going through this pandemic really is grief. Um, and this is an opportunity for, you know, like, like people to kind of connect together and walk through some of those issues. I mentioned AARP's platform I'm very, very impressed with. Um, the website for that is connect to effect. Dot org. So it's connect, C-O-N-N-E-C-T, the number two, effect, A-F-F-E-C-T dot org. Um, and, you know, I think, again, the, those types of things are already out there. Uh, what we need to be doing, whether we're younger or older, is reaching out to those older adults that we have in our lives or anybody and just making these connections, um, you know, even if it's for 10, 15 minutes uh, a day just to check in to know that, you know, you're thinking about somebody and to, to keep those connections because being socially isolated, as I mentioned, um, can, can absolutely be devastating. There was one other thing that we have uh, launched and that's an animatronic pet project. Um, these are full size life looking, um, pets that we tested a year ago to combat social isolation. Uh, we have dogs and cats. Um, we tested them in 12 counties. And what we found after a year um, using a six-question screen, that 70% of the uh, individuals who adopted one of these pets uh, were either uh, had a significant reduction or a reduction in social isolation after a year. So we have recently, last week, purchased 1,100 uh, animatronic pets, and we have been sending them out throughout uh, New York State to uh, individuals who, um, who are isolated. I raised that because they can also be bought uh, privately, and we were, we were able to get a, uh, a discount um, through the through the company. So that has been very very successful for those individuals who you know just love pets and they provide amazing companionship. That is amazing. I was just I have a huge smile on my face as you were describing that because that's a really awesome thing to have. So. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave us with as we wrap up here? Any other words of wisdom coming from your office? Yes. Yes. So for, for your listeners, really take this seriously. The, the number and sophistication of scams uh, during this pandemic is going through the roof. So there has already been charity scams. Um, you know, there, are, uh, there was a, a home repair scam out of Montgomery County. There are emails that people are going to get that are going to look very official that have links in it to click. Don't click anything. Don't answer your phone if you don't know what the number is. Last Thursday, there was a scam using my name uh, all across the eastern seaboard. Could have gone across the United States, but it was um, uh, reported to us from Florida uh, using my name. And the person looked up my name, saw that I was the director of the agency, and thought it was real. Uh, it wasn't. If it, you know, you can always go to the regular sources. I'll give you an example. I get, let's say I get a, an email from Citibank about my account and it has a link in it. 
I don't need to click on the link. I can go right to the Citibank website or I can call Citibank. Um, I can't stress enough, uh, you know, the greatness of people come out in pandemics uh, and emergencies like this and the worst of people come out like this with the stimulus checks that are going to be coming uh, in the coming weeks. Um, this is an opportunity for people to steal people's identity, steal their money, steal their accounts. Don't click on anything. Don't answer the phone. Um, and, you know, do your homework. If it's too good to be true, uh, probably is too good to be true. We want to make sure that all your listeners pay attention to that. It's really important. Well, thank you so much. And for those listening, again, we are with Greg Olson, who is the, the direct acting director of the New York State Office for the Aging, where he oversees the agency's day-to-day operations and the administration of the federal and state-funded programs. And I want to thank you so much for all that your agency is doing right now during this time to help keep people connected, to make sure resources are given to the people who need them and the mental health component is also addressed. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. It's a pleasure to be on with you and thanks for doing the show. It's very important. Thank you so much, Greg. You got it. And stay with us because up next we have Eden Hunter who is employed at Shaker Place Rehabilitation and Nursing Center. We'll be back right after this short break. You're listening to The Social Workers on WCDB Albany. Welcome to the Social Workers Radio Talk Show. I'm your co-host, Alyssa Lotmore, and today we are with Eden Hunter, who is employed at Shaker Place Rehabilitation and Nursing Center. Eden is originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and came to Albany a few short years ago for graduate school. While at the University of Albany School of Social Welfare, Eden was also part of the Internships in Aging Project, which is a program that is for MSW students who want to have a career working with the aging population. Eden recently got engaged to her best friend. Congratulations. And they are having the best time living on the East Coast and exploring all that this area has to offer. They live with their pit bull, Archie, and cockatees, Simon. So welcome, Eden. Thank you so much for having me. So before we jump into some of the questions about your work experience right now, you are an Internships and Aging graduate from the School of Social Welfare, class of 2019. So tell us a little bit about your experience in the IAP program and why you wanted to work with the aging population. Sure. Um, well, first of all, I had a great experience in the IAP program. Um, I knew I wanted to work with the aging population when I began volunteering with a hospice organization in 2016 um, back in Minneapolis. So at the time, I just got my bachelor's in psych and public health and I always thought I wanted to work with children as that was the population that I had the most experience with. Um, I started a job with an insurance company that just wasn't satisfying. I needed more purpose and meaning in my life. Um, so I decided to step out of my comfort zone working with kids and pursue an opportunity volunteering with older adults. Um, I immediately fell in love with the work. Part of my training uh, was to shadow a social worker. So it was like my future became clear and I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I began researching social work programs with focus on aging, and the School of Social Welfare was consistently on lists for top schools for social work. Um, so I applied and was accepted, and I packed up and drove out to Albany in July um, 2017. 
And I honestly wouldn't be the social worker I am today if I hadn't been an IOP. The program truly prepares you for working with this population. Um, and being a part of the IOP, the IOP program was also a great way to get involved in the community. I was able to form connections with different people and agencies in the field of aging that are so valuable um, to me and my career in the nursing home today. So tell us a little bit about how your typical experience right now at Shaker Place has changed because you graduated from the program. I'm sure when you were graduating from the school of social welfare, you didn't really expect this pandemic kind of no, happening when you're going into your first job. So tell us a little right. bit about your, you know, what was your typical work experience before COVID-19 came about? So before all this happened, the majority of my work was working directly with our residents and their families and loved ones. Um, when I get a new admission, the first month is really focused on helping the family and resident adjust to long-term placement. It's really not an easy transition, and part of my role as a social worker is to counsel families and residents through um, through that process. And this has become really challenging as I can't schedule meetings with families to have these conversations. Um, we would also have between 60 and 70 visitors a day, so I was constantly interacting with residents and their and their families. Um, that was really helpful in making sure needs were being met and gave families an opportunity to bring things to my attention. So not having that constant interaction has definitely impacted my work. Um, I'm doing more outreach to make sure families are informed. So a lot of my work now is over the phone, over FaceTime, things like that, which is really hard because a lot of, you know, we need that social interaction part of it. And it's just, it's been really hard. With COVID-19, nursing homes are one of the facilities that are un- under the most restrictions in order to keep the residents safe. So what has this mm-hmm. experience been like for you as an essential employee in this setting? Um, it's been really stressful. It's definitely taking a toll on our residents. Um, as I said, we would have 60 to 70 visitors a day. Families and friends play a huge part in the lives of our residents and um, many are feeling lost without their visitors. So in a way, staff have kind of had to fill in that role that family and friends play, um, which is really challenging. I mean, we have about 200 residents, so we can't really offer the same level of attention that visitors provide. Um, it's also given me a deeper commitment to my work and the people we serve. Like, I feel that showing up and being present at work is more important now than ever before because the residents really rely on staff to again, fill in that role that family played. And you mentioned the stress and anxiety, and not just among residents and their families, but among you, like employees, your colleagues mm-hmm. who, are, who are going in every day as essential workers. So what are you doing to help ease these fears and anxieties for everybody, yourself, the, the residents? Mm-hmm. How can you well, best, every- yeah. Yeah, every staff person is screened before coming into work, so um, this really helps ease some of the anxieties people are having. Um, We wear masks at all times. We're constantly washing our hands and staying mindful of our distance. Um, We're staying in constant communication with our residents and their families. So pretty much I just take one day at a time in order to stay sane. But yeah, I think the communication part is, is critical. Families are, you know, they want to be reassured that we're doing everything we can to make sure that the residents are safe. And it's the the physical ability to keep people safe, but how are you addressing that abil- the ability to connect? And I know you mentioned that 
the residents are used to having multiple visitors during the week and there was about 70 visitors per day coming in and out. So Mm -hmm. what suggestions do you have for individuals who are in nursing homes or these more restricted facility type settings where Mm -hmm. families who want to still have some level of connection and what are ways that families can still do that? Or what is your agency doing right now to help have that ability for families uh, and maybe friends to still connect with residents? Yeah, I mean, we've gotten really creative at Shaker Place. Um, We're facilitating window visits is what we call them, where families can see and talk to their loved ones through the glass. Um, We're FaceTiming and calling families on a daily basis to keep them updated and informed. Um, Last week, it was really cute. We had a, a resident who turned 97, and I helped facilitate a window visit. There were over 20 people that came, and we kind of had like a little... Um, birthday party through the glass and it was it was really special um, families are encouraged to call the unit phones to talk to their loved one and staff are helping residents call from the phones as well um, if they don't have their own personal cell phone we really want to help you know people stay as connected as possible during this time but I would say the window visits are really popular <laughs> yeah. so you know it's just it's important to see to see them in person now, do you think any of these things will continue in the sense of maybe families and who aren't maybe local and want it to visit? Do you think there's some ways now that people are thinking outside the box to have families who maybe not be in the area still connect more so than before? Because I've been realizing how creative people have been becoming for mm-hmm. figuring out ways to still connect when they can't be there. And maybe some of these things will catch on and help in the future for more people in residence who are residents to have that interaction with others. I'm not sure if that's sort of maybe a a good thing that's going to come out of this more creativity to help keep people connected. Exactly. I think, I think it really is going to make it like affect the future and how um, we can communicate with families that are far away. I mean, I think our facility is going to work on getting um, a few iPads to have FaceTime available for families that are far away. Um, you know, even as a social worker, it's kind of giving me ideas as to how I can help families stay connected. And um, so offering FaceTime calls or, you know, even on a weekly basis, I think would be a great thing to offer families um, that can't always visit. Now, is there anything else you'd like to leave our listeners? Because this was one of the, you are an essential employee at a a rehabilitation and nursing center. Is there anything Mm -hmm. that you would like to leave our listeners who might have family in a a nursing home or who are concerned for a loved one there? Do you have any sort of words for for those listening who are kind of maybe a little on edge or are anxious? Yeah, I would say, you know, hopefully this will all be over soon. But right now I would say the staff are really stepping up and doing everything we can to make residents feel loved and safe and, you know, really taken care of. Um, So I know it's hard, but we see them every day and we just, yeah, we want to make sure that, you know, everyone feels safe, that that we are doing everything we can and we, we truly do care about the residents that we serve. 
Well, I want to thank you so much. You're an essential employee. You're a, a social worker in the field. And all the things that you've said are wonderful contributions to help make this process and this experience as, I don't want to say as stress-free, but, you know, decreasing that level of stress for, right. for those involved. And I think that's really all we can do is trying to help keep people safe and also helping mm-hmm. people to feel comfortable. And I want to thank you for all the work that you're doing and your team is doing not only at your facility, but, you know, across the street, across the country, across the world, everyone's sort of stepping up with these new ways to be creative, to help help mm-hmm. people feel connected and help keep people safe. So I want to thank yeah, you for thank everything you. that you're doing. And thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great. Thank you for having me. Again, for our listeners, we were joined today with by Eden Hunter, who is employed at Shaker Place Rehabilitation and Nursing Center. She is an alum of the School of Social Welfare, was part of the Internships and Aging Project, and is contributing a lot right now during this difficult time. So thank you again, Eden. Yeah, thank you, Alyssa. You're listening to The Social Workers on WCDB Albany.